Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would show us Christ and that you would reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. We so desperately need to hear from you and to be changed and molded by this word. So, Lord, we ask that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And, Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. My best friend growing up, his dad was the music minister of our little church in DeRitter, Louisiana, and we called him Brother Joe, and I still call him Brother Joe to this day. And my good buddy Barry Jocelyn and I, when we were all grown up, Brother Joe became bivocational. He not only continued on in ministry, but he also became a professional fisherman. And when I say professional, I mean the whole deal. He had sponsorships, still has them, boats, trucks, all the gear. The, the, these professional fishermen get all the stuff that a, a sportsman could want. But another thing that Brother Joe got was a syndicated column that appeared in newspapers all over the region where we live. He was an expert in fishing, especially at Toledo Bend Lake in Texas. And so his commentary that was going out into all these newspapers was widely followed by fishermen all over the area, East Texas and, and Louisiana. So he had this column that he would write every week, and then he would send it to I don't know how many different newspapers in the region. Well, one day, my buddy Barry is talking, is, he's visiting home, and he's talking to his dad about the column, and Brother Joe is a little distressed because um, he's, he's got, he's, his time was running short, and he needed to get this column out to the newspapers, and Barry knew that his dad had already, it, it, it didn't take that long to write the column, and I think he'd already had the first draft written, and he couldn't figure out what the big deal was, because uh, why, why was it going to take him hours and hours to finish this thing, and his dad was saying it was going to take him so long to get it done. And so, uh, Brother Joe explained to him that he only got the first copy done for the first paper. Now he had to type out the same column to send to all the other papers. He was working on a computer to email it to all these other papers. And so Barry's listening to this and he's puzzled. And he says, he's, he's like, you're going to type out individual copies of your column to each individual paper and send it individually, separate emails? Why are you doing that? And his dad was like, well... Of course, that's what I'm going to do. How else are you supposed to do this? Well, it turns out that while Brother Joe was typing his column on a computer every week, he, he was unfamiliar with the basic functioning of a computer and had been writing his column for ages and did not know how to copy and paste, how to save the document so that every time he emailed it off, it was just gone forever. Um, <laughs> He was typing out individual emails with this column to each individual paper. So um, he was using his kind of computer, but he's using it like a typewriter. And uh, I can't tell you how much Barry improved his dad's life by in introducing him to copy and paste and to saving documents on his own computer. So it's true that we can sometimes make the perfect the enemy of the good, but it is also true 
that we can sometimes make the lesser the enemy of the greater. And we can do this for a number of reasons. In Brother Joe's case, it was just because he didn't, he didn't know any better. Once he was introduced to the better, he embraced it immediately. But sometimes we make the lesser the enemy of the greater, not just because of ignorance, but because of willfulness. I need to eat in order to live. I really like pizza and sweets. I can fulfill my need to eat by having pizza and sweets all the time for every meal if I wanted to. It would be good that I'm not starving. It would fulfill a need. But if I kept on doing it that way, I would have made the lesser the enemy of the greater. I would have made the lesser, eating pizza and sweets, the enemy of the greater, which is actually eating well-balanced and healthy meals. Because of, a, because of my own gluttonous desire, I, I would be pursuing a course that has long-term consequences for my health. Health, consequences that I'm not going to like. And if I were to do that, the problem wouldn't be ignorance, but, but willfulness. So here's the question I want you to think about. Have you ever made the lesser the enemy of the greater because of willfulness in your life? Have you ever chosen something that you knew was not as good for you in the long term because of some fleeting desire that you wanted to fulfill in the short term? I think that kind of willfulness is what Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians 14 in verses 1 to 19. So if you haven't turned there already, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14 verses 1 to 19. Paul is dealing with a group of Christians in Corinth who think that they are so spiritual. They love to make displays, apparently, of their giftedness, especially the gift of tongues. One commentator, uh, Richard Hayes, explains the situation this way. Quote, some of the Corinthians, presumably those who consider themselves gifted with wisdom and knowledge, are placing inordinate emphasis on the gift of tongues. They believe that their ability to speak in a heavenly language, I don't think it's a heavenly language, but anyway, that's what he thinks. But they think their ability to speak in a heavenly language that surpasses human understanding is the ultimate sign of their spiritual power and maturity, end quote. So as a result of this, I think it's basically right, but as a result of this, their, their assembly for worship had turned into disorderliness and confusion. They were exalting the more seemly members over the unseemly members. You remember that from chapter 12? People had these dazzling gifts. With, they're exalting those people over the people who don't have gifts that are as dazzling. They were failing at their obligation to love one another. Remember that from chapter 13? And so now Paul is coming into chapter 14 to challenge their fixation on the gift of tongues. And he tells them that their weekly worship is going to have to change because their fixation on tongues has gotten them all out of whack in their corporate worship. So in this chapter, chapter 14, he's going to talk to them about the relative merits of prophecy and of tongues in their public worship. And in the first 19 verses, which is what we're looking at this morning, he's going to communicate three things. He's going to talk about the superiority of prophecy in verses 1 through 5, the necessity of understanding in verses 6 through 12, and the priority of interpretation in verses 13 through 19. So the superiority of prophecy, the necessity of understanding, the priority 
of interpretation. So the first thing here, the superiority of prophecy. Look at verse 1. Paul says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, we've already talked about the definition of prophecy when we talked about chapter 12. We talked about prophecy being these spontaneously, uh, these spontaneous utterances given by the Spirit. But notice that the first command is the continuation of chapter 13. Love, because he says pursue love before he says anything about prophecy. Love is the defining characteristic of the Christian. You can be a Christian without speaking in tongues or prophesying, but you can't be a Christian without love. It's the first fruit of the Spirit. Jesus says that the world will know us, that we are his disciples by the way that we love one another. If we have love for one another. Love is absolutely the priority for every single Christian without exception. And so Paul starts with this command, pursue love. And notice the verb there. He says, pursue love, which means to move rapidly and decisively toward an objective. The command is that we would move rapidly and decisively towards the objective that we call, that he's calling love, which means, which means to run after it, to, to pursue it. In short, what he's saying is, is that you and I have to conscientiously, above everything else, make love the priority of our lives. Pursue love. And if you miss this, then really none of the rest of what he's about to say is going to make any sense because love is actually the basis of why Paul is saying that prophecy is greater than tongues. And if you're not behaving in a way in the church that you're trying to pursue love, you're not going to get these, these exhortations. So Paul says in the second part of verse 1, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy. Now, this tail end of verse 1 is resuming chapter 12 and verse 31, where Paul commanded, earnestly desire the greater gifts. You remember that, how we left off there? Chapter 12, verse 31, earnestly desire the greater gifts. But at the end of chapter 12, he didn't tell us what those gifts were. He broke off and he gave this whole chapter dedicated to love, that was chapter 13. Now he's coming back to where he left off in chapter 12. And he's saying that the gift greater than tongues is prophecy. But why does Paul think that prophecy is better than tongues? Well, the reason for prophecy's superiority to tongues appears in verse 2. He explains it. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Now, some people think that the experience that Paul describes here is different from the one that's described in the book of Acts. So, in Acts 2, the people understand what is being said when the tongues are spoken. But here, in 1 Corinthians 14, the people fail to comprehend the words of the tongue speaker. They would say, okay, that's a key difference. In Acts, the tongues are addressed to people, but here, 1 Corinthians 14, it says that they speak to God. And so some people 
observe these differences and say, oh, these must be two different kinds of tongue speaking. There's the Acts kind, and then there's the 1 Corinthians 14 kind. I think that that's a mistaken reading. Not, and the reason I say that is because it's not reading carefully either Acts or 1 Corinthians 14. Go back and look at the book of Acts. It is not the case that everyone understood what was being said by those tongues, was it? What did some people conclude when they heard the tongues being spoken? They concluded that these people were drunk. Why would they say, well, you conclude that because you think they're babbling and you don't understand what they're saying. So not, I don't think everyone in Acts understood what was being said. Only those who heard someone speaking in their own native language were able to understand what was being spoken because they heard their native language being spoken in the book of Acts. So there were many who didn't understand and they concluded that the, that the people were drunk who were, who were doing this. Also, Paul is clear that tongue speakers should aspire to speak to, the, to other people who are gathered for worship. So verse 2 says they're speaking to God, but doesn't Paul go on to say in verse 5 that when there's a translation of the tongue, other people in the congregation are edified. So when Paul says that the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God in verse 2, he doesn't mean that it's, it's some kind of a private language aimed only at God. All he means is that God is the only one in the worship service who comprehends what is being spoken when there's not an interpreter. That's all he means by that. The reason he's speaking only to God is not because it's a prayer, but because no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the Spirit. You see that? Paul gives the explanation. Why is it that you're only speaking to God? Because nobody understands him. He's speaking mysteries in the Spirit. Now, some people think that mysteries proves that this is some kind of a private praying language that has no earthly meaning because it's just mysteries, right? It's ecstatic utterance. That, uh, that is the wrong way to read this. First... The reason that that's the wrong way to read it is because he uses the usual word for an earthly language when he says, um, um, when he talks about speaking in tongues in verse 2. It's the word um, glossé, uh, which, excuse me, glossé, which is the same word that appears in Acts 2 in verses 3, 4, and 11. So it's the same word for tongues, both here in 1 Corinthians 14 that you have in, in Acts 2, and it's usually referring to just normal human languages. But the second reason that we know that um, mysteries is not talking about just a private, unmeaningful language, is that mysteries in Paul's writing is a technical term for, uh, he means something very specific by that. Mystery refers to something, not to something that's currently hidden, but to something that was once hidden and that has now been revealed by the gospel. So you'll remember in chapter 2 and verse 7, Paul uses the word mystery there, and it's clear that mystery refers to God's wisdom, the hidden wisdom that's been revealed to us in the gospel. So when it says, um, no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit, what he means by that is that the content of the tongues is not gibberish, it's gospel mysteries. He's speaking mysteries, things that were once hidden but have now been revealed by the gospel. The Holy Spirit is giving the tongue speaker, the, he's revealing to him content and it's gospel mysteries. And it's supernatural because it's delivered in a language that's not otherwise known to the speaker. It's a miracle and the miracle has meaning. 
Now, I understand that there are good and godly people who, who read this verse differently than the way I've just explained it to you. And they believe that this indicates some kind of a private prayer language. I, I'm, what I'm trying to say is I'm just not seeing that here. I think this is a human language communicating gospel mysteries. And for it to be beneficial, it needs to be interpreted so that people can understand it. Otherwise, the only one who gets what's being said is God. So this verse is not describing a manifestation that we should aspire for, but that we should avoid in public worship because it's uninterpreted, and that becomes the burden of the rest of the passage. An uninterpreted tongue is not something that you would want to be taking place during a public gathering for worship. So look at verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Aha. Now this is the key. Prophecy is designed to engage the mind of listeners in a way that an untranslated tongue cannot. People cannot understand a foreign language, which means they cannot understand tongues when they're untranslated. People can understand prophecy because it is delivered in a person's native tongue. Paul knows, here's the point, Paul knows that the sanctification of God's people happens when God's people have a renewal of their mind, Romans chapter 12 in verse 2. And Paul knows that untranslated tongues can't touch believers' minds, but prophecy does reach people's minds. And when it does, it brings, he says, upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. When people understand the message being spoken, it helps them and grows them and makes them strong in the faith. But no one is going to have their mind renewed by hearing someone talk in a language that they don't understand. And so Paul says this in verse 4. He says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself but the one who prophesies builds up the church. The person who speaks in an untranslated tongue is still exercising a gift and is possessed by the Spirit when they do so. And the Spirit's presence, I think he means, builds up the tongue speaker because he's experiencing the powerful presence of God in his own person in that moment. But still, that experience is inferior to the one who prophesies. And so builds up the church by doing so. Love means that serving the church is more important than serving yourself. And that's why prophecy is more important in this context. It's something you do for others, not something you do focused solely on yourself. And Paul's priority here, remember, pursue love. Pursue love, which means pursue especially prophecy. You love your brothers and sisters in Christ when you communicate in a way that they understand. Verse 5. Now I want all, all of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, lest anyone think that Paul's dogging on tongues, um, he makes it clear that he's not. Okay, he, he says that. I wish you all spoke in tongues. He's simply saying that tongues are not as beneficial as prophecy unless there is an interpretation of the tongues. This 
this is important, okay? Get this, because this tells us that Paul views a translated tongue as the functional equivalent of a prophecy. And that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? What is a prophecy? It's a spontaneous utterance inspired by the Holy Spirit. What's a tongue? It's a spontaneous utterance inspired by the Holy Spirit. The only difference between the two is that the one you can understand and the other you can't, unless there's an interpreter, in which case prophecy and tongues are equal because they are both understood. Are you following the logic here? Paul's bottom line is this. Tongues don't exist for your private personal edification alone. They exist for the building up of the body of Christ if you love the body of Christ, then you must only pursue in public worship that which builds up the body. You must not choose to do things that only benefit yourself. You must not make the lesser the enemy of the greater because of a willful refusal to love your brothers and sisters well. You following what Paul's saying? Now, everything that I've set up into this point it begs a big question about the place of tongues and prophecy in worship services in general. I already delivered a message late last year explaining why I believe that tongues and prophecy have ceased to be operative in, in the church. I'm not going to rehash that whole argument here this morning. If you missed that or you want to review that, I encourage you to go to the website, listen to that message. But if it's true that we should not expect to see prophecy in tongues as a regular part of our church's corporate worship, which we've already taken a look at, then how would a text like this apply to us? Does it apply to us? I think it actually does still apply to us. While, while we're not looking for prophecy to reappear here at Kenwood Baptist Church, we still believe that what Paul taught about how we are sanctified, don't we? Um, Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. You know what that means? It means Jesus' plan for you, your sanctification and my sanctification is that we would become more and more holy as we come into contact with God's truth. And he says, God's word is his truth. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Jesus says that we're sanctified as we come into contact with the truth, which means that we're sanctified as our minds come into contact with God's word. That, that is why Paul says that our transformation happens by the renewal of our minds. We are changed from the inside out, not by the outside in so much. What that means is that it's our job in this church to do everything we can to connect your mind to God's revelation. That's what they were doing in Corinth. Paul is just trying to get their minds connected to God's revelation. He doesn't want any barriers to them being connected to God's revelation, and an untranslated tongue would be a barrier. But those aren't the only kinds of barriers that we can have in a church to God's revelation. So in Corinth... God's revelation came to them through scripture and through prophecy. In our church, God's revelation comes to us through scripture. That means that we must endeavor to connect you to scripture as much as we can in our corporate worship. If we want to see you built up, that's what we will do. 
There, there are lots of things that people can do in worship services. There are lots of goofy things, actually, that happen in worship services in churches around the country. And a lot of them have nothing to do with connecting God's people to God's revelation so that they can be powerfully changed by, by God's word. So if we aren't making plain God's revelation to you, and if you're not coming here to receive that word, then God's work in you will be stunted. So our aim here, we hope that we're doing this, our, our aim here is that we want to sing the word, we want to pray the word, we want to preach the word, and we want to display the word here in this supper. And we want to do that week in and week out. And we believe that your connection to that is going to change you. Do you understand that it's your connection to those regular means of grace that's going to change you? If you believe that, then you're going to avail yourself of that. And you're going to try to put aside all barriers to that. And you're going to understand why we shape our worship service as we do. Paul is addressing their worship gatherings. And he's addressing us in this. So Paul says, first of all, he talks about the superiority of prophecy in verses 1 to 5. But the second thing, he talks about the necessity of understanding. And this is verses 6 through 12. Look at verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Now, Paul lists four items there, revelation, knowledge, prophecy, and teaching. I agree with uh, commentators like Tom Schreiner who say that these four items have a certain relationship to one another. What we have here are actually two gifts, prophecy and teaching, that bring about two edifying results in the hearer's mind, revelation and knowledge. Prophecy brings revelation to a person's mind. Teaching brings knowledge to a person's mind. So what we have in view here are two gifts, not four, prophecy and teaching. Both gifts bring edification because they can both be understood by the listener. That's the point. So Paul says, if I come to you speaking in tongues, if, it won't do you any good unless I speak to you in one of the understandable forms of speech. Understanding the word is prerequisite to being edified by the word, whatever that word gift may be. And now Paul call, gives two illustrations of the point. Look at verse seven. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct tones, how will anyone know what is played? Can you imagine a musical instrument that only plays one note? You will never be able to play a song with a one-note musical in instrument. Who wants to listen to that? Where's the beauty in that? There has to be distinctions in tones, right? Before there can be a melody. And you can't communicate a melody without distinction in tones. Verse 8. And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Paul's readers would have understood that the trumpet or the bugle was often used to muster troops for battle. The bugle signaled the command of their officer and called them to the fight. If there are no discernible notes coming from the bugle, how will the troops get ready for battle? They won't. They will get caught 
unaware and will be defeated. All because no one understood the signal being sent to them. The key is that the message, you can see where Paul's going with this, right? Paul's just trying to say that the message needs to be understandable or else everyone stands to lose a great deal. So he says in verse 9, So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. And, and now he's bringing the analogies home. He says, if you're speaking in a language that no one understands and there is no interpreter, what good is that to anyone? How does that benefit anyone? Now, if there were some people who understood the language like there were at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, you, you could see how that would be beneficial. But how does it help if the revelation you're sharing can't be accessed by anyone because it's in a language they don't understand? It doesn't help. So he says in verse 10, there are doubtless many different languages in the world and none of them is without meaning. Now, verse 10, I think, is important um, for one thing because it further indicates that tongues were not <clears throat> ecstatic utterances, that, that Paul is thinking in terms of known human languages. And Paul's saying there's many languages in the world, none of them are without meaning. And he's, this is a commentary on what he thinks is taking place within the church when they speak tongues. He says the languages may sound like gibberish to a for foreigner, but they are emphatically not gibberish, okay? Because there's many languages in the world and none of them is without meaning. Verse 11, but if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker of the language and the speaker a foreigner to me. Now, I'm reading the ESV, which renders this term foreigner, um, and that's actually translating the Greek term barbaros. It's the word where we, we get our word barbarian from it. And the connotation in Paul's day is not the same connotation we have with, with bar barbarian. A barbarian is not somebody who looks like Conan running around with a big sword. Um, a barbarian was just someone who didn't know the Greek language or culture. And Greek was the common language of the first century Roman world. So the term came to refer to foreigners in general, people who were strangers to that common language that people spoke. So, have you ever tried to have a conversation with someone who is a foreigner to your language and you to theirs? It's hard. You ever had this kind of tried to communicate with somebody who doesn't know your language, you don't know theirs? It's hard. It's actually alienating. It tends to foreclose the possibility of a relationship with that person. It, it, uh, the language barrier is a relationship barrier. It was this way for the people who were spread out after the Tower of Babel incident. Remember that in Genesis chapter 11? Uh, they couldn't speak to one another anymore, so what do they do? Instead of gathering together, they spread apart. They got alienated from, from one another. When the gift of tongues was given in Acts chapter 2, it was like the undoing of Babel. So whereas God's judgment had divided the languages and scattered the people in Genesis 11, what do you have in Acts chapter 2? You've got God's blessing of the Spirit, which had supernaturally united the languages, as it were, and gathered the people. Tongues were given at the very beginning to foster understanding and communication where there was none before. That was the point of, of the gift. 
They were not given to create another Babel situation where people couldn't understand one another. If, you're, if your use of tongues is creating a situation where people don't understand one another, that's like Babel. That's not like Pentecost. And that's what happens every time that a tongue is spoken and there's no interpreter and there's nobody there who understands the language. In that situation, tongues don't help. So verse 12, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. In other words, strive to actually communicate life-giving messages in everything that is said during your worship gathering. Build up the church. Don't alienate your brothers and sisters by speaking a language to them that they don't understand. You know, we, we homeschool our kids, and we've been following the Memoria Press curriculum for the whole time, for every one of our kids, which means at this point, we've got three of our four kids who are learning Latin. And uh, Susan doesn't teach Latin at home anymore because a few years ago, we started the kids in a Monday program at a cottage school, and they're taking Latin classes there. And um, at this cottage school that they're going to, they're not only learning Latin, but it's a Christian school, and they're also teaching our kids a number of different Latin prayers, different prayers for different occasions. And my son, Denny, loves the Latin prayers. I can't tell you how many times we've asked him to say the blessing at a meal, and he's like, sanctu, 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 and he just like starts in <laughs> to these Latin prayers. And um, he really likes them. I'm kind of impressed <laughs> with them that he's learned them so well. I'm proud of him. But, but you know what? Our family prayer times are really not about impressing one another. They're about offering thanks to God together. And when one of us is speaking a language that some of us don't know, that can be alienating, right? So we are not even sure how to say the amen at the end of a of a Latin prayer because we don't understand what's being said. For all we know, he's saying, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, you know? <laughs> so we've actually been moving away from that in our meal times. I'm actually saying, no, we're not, we're not going to do that anymore when we come together to pray. Now, why? Not because it's wrong to say Latin prayers. That's fine to say Latin prayers. But because I want to teach that praying with other people is not about trying to dazzle them with impressive Language, it's about calling out to God in a way that others can call out together with you. In other words, it's about praying in such a way that the others at the, at the table might be edified and built up by what is said. It, it's a small thing, I think, but, it, but it's a point that I want to try to drive home. The point of corporate worship is not that we would serve ourselves, but that we would worship Christ and build one another up in love. And that means that in our communication of the word, we want to do it in a way that is accessible to as many people as possible. We should strive to communicate in a way that draws people in, not in a way that alienates them from the message. And, and honestly, as I was thinking about how to try to apply this, you know what I kept coming back to? Myself and the other pastors. We are the ones that you, the church, have set apart to be the primary communicators of God's revelation to this congregation through the preaching, the teaching, and the singing of the word. 
So the application I'm taking away is that means that we have, we have the great privilege and responsibility of learning how best to communicate with you in ways that connect to you, in ways that you understand and that you can apply. So you pray for us. We're not perfect. I need to get better. We all need to, to, to get better. And you should know we love you, and because we love you, we, we want to get better. We want the word to go forth, and we want it to connect. So Paul talks about the superiority of prophecy, the necessity of understanding, and finally, the, the priority of interpretation. Look at verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now, verse 13 makes it clear that the interpreter doesn't always have to be another person. If the tongue speaker can interpret, then let him do it. If he, can, if he can't interpret, he needs to pray that he, he would be able to. Why? Because it isn't as edifying as it could be even to the tongue speaker unless there's an interpretation. He's praying by the Spirit, but his mind is unfruitful. He is not comprehending the message. So verse 15, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, and I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Meaning, whatever it is that he says or sings in corporate worship, he wants his mind fully engaged when the spirit enables him to speak. He wants the spirit not only to enable the tongue, but also to enable the interpretation so that his mind will be fruitful. Why? Because transformation into the image of Christ is all about the renewal of the mind. And that presumes that you understand what's being spoken, even if you're the one speaking it. Verse 16, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you were saying? Well, the answer to that is they won't be able to, and that's the problem. Do you know what the amen is here? Most of us think, most of us think, most of us think of, of amen as the, uh, you know, just that thing we say at the end of the prayer. But the word means more than that. Amen is a Hebrew expression that derives from a Hebrew expression that indicates a strong affirmation of what is stated. It means something like, let it be so, or truly. It's, it's a way for people to offer their own verbal affirmation of what's being spoken the teaching or the prayer or the praise or whatever. But how can people say their affirmation to what's being spoken if they don't know what is being spoken? They can't. They're excluded and alienated from the worship, which should never happen in a corporate worship service. So verse 17, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. And that's the point. If the speaker is the only one being edified, that's a problem. The speaker needs to lay off tongue speaking in Paul's context if no one's being edified but himself. Verse 18, Paul says this. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. I think what Paul is trying to show them is that he's, he's not down on tongue speaking. He does it himself. That should not be surprising to us. It shouldn't be surprising that Paul spoke a lot in tongues, right? He was... the Apostle to the Gentiles. He was going all over the Roman world from place to place to place. You think it would come in handy 
to have the supernatural ability to speak languages that you don't know as you're on mission with, like Paul was? Uh, yeah, I think that would be very helpful. And so Paul said, I thank God that I speak in, I speak in tongues more than, 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 than all of you. And he may also be putting the Corinthians in their place a little bit. Remember, they're impressed with themselves about their tongue speaking. He's like, I do this more than you. Um, I, I'm not going to receive instruction from you about this, okay? The, I, I I'm grateful that I speak in tongues more than, than all of you. And so they, they were impressed with their own spiritual wisdom and giftedness. They were pretty impressed with themselves about speaking in tongues. And Paul may be simply reminding them, I do all this more than you do. Verse 19, nevertheless, I do this more than you, but nevertheless... In church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. In other words, Paul's overwhelming preference is to speak in a way that he can both understand and be understood. And five small words from God that you do understand are weightier than 10,000 words that you don't understand. During college, I went through a period of being open to charismatic gifts. I told you about that story at one point in the past. I was very much interested in the gift of tongues, even hoping that I would get to experience that gift at some point. That was never to be, and I came to the conviction that I have now that that's not really something that we should be looking for. But while I was going through this phase, I came into contact with a particular charismatic mission group that encouraged its people to speak in tongues. And, and they define tongues as these ecstatic utterances, a prayer language wrought by the Spirit. And yet, they would come across in their ministry people who had not received the gift of tongues. I was one of those people. And so you know what they would and tell people to do? They would coach them to just start repeating syllables that didn't mean anything until the Spirit took over. It was almost like they were saying, look, hey, Lord, um, I can't bring forth Isaac by myself, so I will just give a little Ishmael <laughs> here. Um, in other words, there's nothing coming from the Spirit, so I'll just give you a little work of the flesh. I'll just start these syllables going, and then maybe the Spirit will take over. Well, there's nothing supernatural about making yourself repeat nonsense syllables. And there's nothing edifying about that either. That is not the biblical gift of tongues. And that kind of self-focused vocalizing is not what God is calling us to do. He's calling us to build one another up in our most holy faith. And that can only happen when we understand each other. And when we're not letting the lesser become the enemy of the greater. Okay. Let me say one last thing. If you're a visitor today... Your eyeballs are like this right now. What are you guys talking about? This is crazy talk. Well, maybe it is crazy, but it's not as crazy as this. Um, the Bible teaches that all of us are sinners, and you can't save yourself. It also teaches that because of your sin, you, God owes you judgment forever in a place called hell. But the Bible also says that because God loves you, that he sent his son to die in your place, to take the judgment that you deserve. And then he rose again, he came back to life, and he's alive right now and seated at the right hand of God. And he offers eternal life to anyone who would believe in him alone for salvation. 
And if you would turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus in faith, the Bible says that you will be saved. And a lot of this stuff that doesn't make sense will all start to come in clear view because the Bible says when you know Jesus, he sends his spirit to you. It changes you and transforms you and opens your mind to see and to understand the things of God. If you haven't done that, you need to do that today. And I would love to talk to you about it. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you would take your word and use it to sanctify your people and save the lost. Lord, use your word. Let it not come back void. Lord, help us to love one another in the way we serve one another in worship. And if there are things we're doing now that are distractions and that are barriers to connecting people to your revelation, Lord, would you help us to see those things and help us to do better? Lord, would you help us that are communicating the word in song and in teaching and in preaching, would you help us to do better? Help us to, to improve in our ability to connect your revelation to your people. Make us humble, Lord. And Lord, um, help us to be changed by this message. Lord, we ask you to do all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.